how, how beautiful it was this morning because we didn't really talk about what I was preaching on and yet the music that you chose just, just connects us so beautifully to what we're going to be looking at this morning and brings out the joy uh, in what we have uh, through Christ. And so I'm going to ask you, uh, just as we open, if you knew this next week was the last week of your life, and you had one last opportunity to speak to those you love, to pass on something to them of significance, what would you say? My dear Aunt Marianne, who's now in the presence of Jesus, was in that place several years back, diagnosed with terminal ovarian cancer. She chose her last words carefully. I remember her looking at me intently uh, in the hospital room, her hair all gone and her body wasted away, but her eyes full of love. And she said to me, love each other, just love each other. And those were her last words to me. They affected me greatly. I, I (laughs) I wish I could say that I acted on them all the time. Um, to the extent that I think she was trying to communicate that to me. I was young at the time, and I don't, uh, I can't say that I have, but I have remembered that. I remember her looking at me and just the the intensity uh, of it. And uh, uh, it's it's a beautiful memory for me. We've spent several weeks uh, in the Gospel of Mark. About the beginning of May, we started uh, with this Gospel, and we're at the conclusion of Jesus' three-year ministry now. In today's passage, there's a bit of a pivotal change in that his focus now becomes his disciples uh, and will be for the remaining time until his arrest and his crucifixion, which is essentially uh, days away now. Uh, Being the son of God, he knew the cross was coming. And being also fully man, the anticipation of what he was going to have to endure on our behalf weighed heavy on him. It would make sense that a man in that position would choose his words carefully. Uh, They would be worth listening to and considering. So I'm going to ask you to approach today's sermon with that mindset. These are the words of a man who is about to die and he knows it. Uh, We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 13. uh, And I'm going to pick chunks out of it, but we're essentially looking at the chapter Uh, If you are using, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible and you're using one off the table, we're on page 495. 495 is Mark chapter 13. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Mark is the second one. And we're in chapter 13. We're going to start right at the beginning. So I'm going to read the first couple of verses. And as he came out of the temple, that's Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. By the way, if you're visiting with us this morning and you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one of these Bibles along as our gift to you. Um, On the screen behind me uh, is going to be a a picture, a replica, a model of the temple. And Herod the Great um, was the, uh, uh, the man in charge of this building project. Uh, he was known for his building projects, actually, and uh, they were designed to make a statement, uh, mostly a statement to him. Um, he was all about him. And, uh, and the temple was no exception. It was a pretty impressive structure. This, is, of course, is a, a model or mock-up uh, that we're seeing here. Um, but as the disciples were walking out with Jesus, uh, it, it would just be something that would, it would hit you. And, uh, and they were commenting 
on this building. I'm not quite sure what inspired their comment that way, but I do want you to keep in mind that their perspective on this was colored in a couple of key ways. Number one, the temple was physically and structurally massive and stunning. It was designed to be that. And it was still under construction at that time. In fact, it was still under construction 40 years later uh, when its destruction occurred. And it had been in process at that time for already 50 years. One would naturally look at it and say, wow, it's taken 50 years for us to get to this point. It is solid. It is secure. It is not going to be moved. Look at this thing. I, I, would, I would imagine that it would be a similar response to seeing, say, the pyramids of Egypt. Has anyone ever seen the pyramids, actually? Okay, just curious. Um, you know, massive blocks of stone and the labor that would have gone into it. They were also looking at the temple from this perspective, that it was spiritually the representation of God's favor toward the nation of Israel. It would be easy to fall into the trap of thinking, we are God's chosen people. The temple is his dwelling place among us. He he wouldn't allow anything to happen to this. And Jesus dashes all of that with his simple statement. He strips away their confidence in their national and religious identity in order to reestablish their basis in him as their personal Savior and Lord. His words to his disciples are intended to inform them that the core of their religious system was going to be destroyed. It was going to be removed. It had to be. It was now becoming a problem, a stumbling block. It had to be taken out of the way. In its place, he was establishing once and for all what had always been God's intent. And that was a relationship whose basis was sacrificial, unconditional love. He was going to demonstrate that himself. Isaiah 41 verse 13 says this. So this is already in the Old Testament. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. I want you to get a picture in your mind. It may be fairly easy this morning because my granddaughter was here. She's little, she's adorable, I'm a little biased. Um, But there are things that she has difficulty accomplishing at this time. And I love it when she puts out her hand and I take hers and I help her with I help her down the stairs, for example. That's what she wants to do. But she's not capable of doing that yet herself. And there is a, a, a tenderness, an intimacy, if you will, to taking that little hand and holding it. And, and I'm saying, I am your grandfather who takes you by your right hand and says, don't fear, I will help you. That kind of an intimate picture is the kind that God is trying to bring forth here. That's about relationship. That's not about do this and I'll be happy with you. Don't do this and I'm not going to be happy with you. Right? This is, I love you. I already love you. You don't have to earn that love. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is really talking about here. My question to you this morning is, in what have you placed your confidence? What would absolutely rock your foundations if God were to take it away? Maybe it's something really huge. Would it be the collapse of the financial system? We hear talk of global warming all the time and the rise of ocean levels. Would it be massive flooding and destruction and loss of life? What have you worked all your life towards that, if it were suddenly gone, would absolutely devastate you? Is it, is it your business? 
or, or your position within a business? Is it your real estate holdings? Is it your pension or retirement portfolio? Maybe it's your marriage, your family. Maybe it's your good works and your reputation. There could be all kinds of things that we mistakenly place our confidence in. I, I, I've done this or I've acquired this, so I should be okay. And you know what? As, as Christians, we're not immune to that. Right? We can still get misled into thinking, well, yeah, I, I'm a Christian and, and like that's okay. And sometimes we say, because I'm a Christian, that's okay. And we're thinking the wrong thing. We're thinking because I'm, I don't know, part of the team was sometimes my thought process. I'm on the right team, so everything's going to be okay. And God rocks my foundation because I haven't quite understood it the way that he wants me to. Jesus' message to his disciples and to us is this. Nothing in this life in this world is secure, so don't place your faith there. Let's, let's read the rest of the passage. I think that's kind of an introduction, and I, I wonder if at this particular moment, you know, the disciples are going, what is he saying? Like, the temple? That's, that's where God's presence is. We go to the temple to worship him. You're saying, you're saying that? that's out, right? Think about what God had already said in Jesus, what Jesus has already said specifically, right? Uh, when he talks to the woman at the well, right? What does he say to her? Um, he says, well, well, you know, Samaritans, well, you worship on this mountain, you know, and the, and the, the Israelites worship in Jerusalem, but God desires to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. This is what Jesus is bringing out here. You know, don't get all wrapped up in the religious portion of this, men, that's not what it's about. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. And we're going to turn this whole thing upside down. God is not going to dwell in a building. God is going to dwell in your heart. And that's what he's trying to bring out to these men that he's training. Let's continue reading here. And I'm going to read some chunks here. I think we're going to read the whole passage, and then we'll come back and we'll look at uh, three key points that I've, that I've brought out in this. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, I went and checked some of this out on Google. I didn't get some really great pictures, but with a bunch of different pictures, I got some images in my mind. And, uh, and the temple was kind of down in a bit of a valley and a little bit up, and that's where it was sitting. And the Mount of Olives was a, a hill, and there was a, a, a route or a path that people would commonly follow over that hill, and then you'd get into areas like Bethany, where Lazarus and Mary and Martha, some friends of his were, uh, some people that we are familiar with from the Gospels, and, and others. And so this was a, a place that, you know, had orchards on it and stuff. It was a shady place to sit. And as they sat on this and they looked down, they would have been able to see that temple that they had just talked about, and the whole valley would kind of be spread before them. This is the Mount of Olives, right? So olive groves is what would be there, and they would be probably sitting in the shade of those. And this is where they're carrying on this conversation. And these four, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they, they come to Jesus, and they're going, you know, we're picking up that you're saying something here. You're talking about, like, that temple's going to be completely dismantled. What's going on? 
This is sounding big. So how do we know when this is going to happen? Are there signs that we should look for for the end? And so Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I'm going to get you to skip down to verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. I'm going to ask you to skip down to the bottom of that page to verse 32. And it says this. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So, uh, there was much more in that passage that we could have looked at. I did skip some verses over, um, but it talks about a time of persecution and of tribulation. And it's going to be something that is unbelievable, is beyond, I think, our imagination. Uh, we've never seen anything like it uh, in the history of man. Um, but there is this end coming, and that is our first point. Uh, multiple times through the passage, Jesus says it or refers to it. In verse 7, he says, the end is not yet. In verse 13, he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And in verse 8, he says, this is but the beginning of birth pangs. Now, I personally have never been through that. But for those of you that may have, you know that there's beginning of birth pangs, and that means that there's going to be a process. There is going to be a birth. And the beginning is, like it says, only the beginning. It's, it, does, it doesn't get more fun. Um, the, the birth pains uh, increase until that time, right, when the baby is born. 
Um, so there's an implication there that, hey, we've only started. There is a process coming. It's going to be painful, and there will be an end. In AD 70, some mere 40 years later than this moment here where Jesus is talking to his disciples, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. They leveled that temple that we were looking at, and it was brutal. You have to understand a little bit of the background there. In the years just prior to that, there was a group called the Zealots. They were kind of a, uh, an underground kind of guerrilla-type um, um, r- response group. And they were, they were very nationalistic, and they wanted to see Israel uh, removed from being under Roman occupation. And so they would have these, um, these, these, these bands of men that were, um, in, in some senses, suicide warriors, they, the, their lives they counted as nothing um, to attack the Romans and kill them. And so many s- Roman soldiers had died at the hands of these zealots. And the Romans hated all the Jews as a result. Because if you weren't a zealot, then they felt that, well, as a Jew, you were going to hide the zealots. And so they just hated them all. They were eager to get their revenge for this situation as well. And in A.D. 70, Jerusalem was under siege by the Romans. They had trapped. Whoever was in Jerusalem was trapped inside Jerusalem. And if I understood all the details correctly, it was just around the time of Passover. So there had been a lot of people that had gone in, and now they were trapped inside. And the resources that were there were all they had. And so Jerusalem had been under siege eventually for six months. I just want you to think about you as a family or as an individual, being trapped inside your home for six months with no real opportunity for preparation. How long would it take before the food supplies would run out? Can't include my mother-in-law in this because she could stockpile for like three years in the basement. But, um, but the rest of us, I don't know that we would have sufficient food in-house to last for six months. It was so bad um, that uh, people were known to take strips of leather and boil it in water to make a soup from that, hoping to get some kind of nutrition. It's even rumored that that there were some that ate those that had already died. Um, It was a terrible, terrible situation, absolutely brutal. And uh, and so at that point, uh, shortly thereafter, the the soldiers broke through the walls. There were three walls. They butchered many, uh, just indiscriminately walking into houses and just killing everybody there, men, women, children, with the sword. Uh, in some cases, they took some and sold them. This would be some, I'm talking like hundreds or thousands, and sold them as slaves within the Roman Empire. And then others were sent to the arenas for blood sport. We won't get into the details there, but that was pretty horrible uh, as well. The temple itself was set on fire at one point, and the fury and hatred of the Roman soldiers for the Jews pushed them to just tear that temple apart. There was gold inside the temple, uh, so uh, I, I've heard it said that some of that gold in the course of the blaze would have melted and run down the sides, and that may have also uh, motivated the soldiers to pry the stones apart to try and get some of that molten gold for themselves. There were also rumors of great treasure within the temple, so tearing the stones apart to get at that, that gold, that treasure that was hidden supposedly somewhere inside, all of that would have been motivation for them to take that place apart, literally stone by stone. And as a result, Jesus' words in verse 2, not one stone would be standing atop another, were fulfilled to the letter. So was that it then? Was that the terrible event that Jesus was foretelling? 
Was that the persecution and tribulation that he had been referring to? Was it only limited to the nation of Israel? If so, then what about all those signs that Jesus referred to? And what about the fact that he makes this comment in verse 19, or in that chunk from 19 to 23, that, that if the Lord had not shortened the days, no human being would have survived. If, if the event that occurred in Israel was the one he was referring to, then how does that impact the rest of the world? It, that doesn't seem to connect. And what we have to understand oftentimes in prophecy in the Bible is that there's, there's often a, a, a near event. This doesn't happen always, but there's a near event and then there's a further event. There was that near event, that destruction of Israel. And Israel ceased to be a national identity at that point. It was terrible. Um, that one in AD 70, when, when they took that place apart, Israel was not seen as a national figure again until 1948. The, for the rest of that period of, of human history, they were dispersed amongst all the nations and they did not have a homeland. Uh, that process of bringing that homeland to, to, to fruition again was, was really a series of miraculous events. And again, we don't have time to get into that, um, but it would be very cool to take a look at how God brought all that together against all odds and made Israel a nation again, because that too is part of God's word and God's prophecies, and God cannot lie. But Jesus was referring to another future event, one that is still future to us as well. And I think that's why this is so significant for us this morning. So this brings us to point number two, uh, that we don't know when this end is going to occur. And that was pretty clear throughout the passage as well. But Jesus did indicate that there were many signs that would occur before the end, things that we can be looking for. And those things were not fulfilled in that time coming up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So that's another indicator that that's not what he's referring to. First of all, Jesus refers to the fact that there would be false messiahs. He said that many will come in my name saying, I am he. I did a quick Google search and it was, it was rather surprising and interesting. Um, in the 20th century, so from 1900 to 2000, there were at least 22 different noteworthy individuals who claim to be Jesus Christ or the Messiah. Already in the first 10 years of the 21st century, so from 2000 to 2010, uh, we have five that have claimed to be Jesus Christ. And there might have been smaller, less notorious figures that have also done so, but these are five that have made the news in some way or another and have been recorded. Uh, at that rate, if we keep that up throughout the 21st century, uh, then we will more than double the number from the previous century. And that's ignoring the number of false religions and programs that claim to be kind of Messiah-ish in terms of, you know, they are going to save you. They are going to be your redemption. Uh, the second thing that Jesus referred to was wars and rumors of wars. There is something called the Global Peace Index. I did not know this. Uh, until I started doing some research. And they record the number of countries in the world that are at war, either internally or with other countries, and those that are not at war with anybody. And the 2017 data was not out yet, but as of 2016, there were, anyone wanna guess? How many of you think that we're at peace in the world? 
countries? 50? Okay. 20? You're getting closer. 11. That blew my socks off. There are 11 countries in the world only that are not at war internally or externally. 11. Earthquakes. So I started looking up some earthquake information. I'm going to apologize in advance. I am a math teacher. Numbers are my thing. So we're going to see a little bit of that because that's just how I work. But when I was a kid, uh, my dad traveled a fair bit. And, uh, and we spent uh, six months living in Turkey in the Middle East. Uh, when we were there, we went on a, a small holiday to the Mediterranean. And in that time in the hotel, we experienced an earthquake. Um, it shook our hotel, it faulted the ground and contaminated the groundwater. We all got sick with cholera. Uh, it's a wonder we survived. Uh, I've never been that sick in my life and I hope that I am never that sick again. I believe the earthquake was around a 7.0 on the Richter scale and it was scary. Uh, in fact, even one rating of 5.0 was considered a big deal in the middle, uh, the middle yeah, the mid 70s. Uh, that was noteworthy or newsworthy, if you will. I counted up the number of 5.0 or greater earthquakes since the year 2000. There have been 531 earthquakes, 5.0 and greater. Not only that, uh, I ignored all kinds of them that were just under that. I had to make a cutoff somewhere. But 531. Um, we're averaging at this point in 2017, we're in the range of almost three earthquakes per month, five or greater. Uh, there's a graph up here on the screen and I plotted the data and, and uh, did a linear regression because that's what I do. And you don't really have to understand all that. But what I do want you to note is that the red dots represent the number of earthquakes in each of the years since 2000. And it bounces around back and forth a little bit. Uh, but the linear regression through that simply indicates that if you were to put together an equation that projects or predicts where that's going to go in the future, then it's already acknowledging the fact that there is a rise or an increase in the number of earthquakes each year. Um, and up in the box is the equation for that, and it just simply indicates that there's an increase of 0.16 earthquakes every year. Doesn't sound like a whole lot, but if you make that over 100 years, we've now got 16 more earthquakes. Or if you make it over 1,000 years, we've got 160 more earthquakes per year. Right, if it continues at this particular rate. And there's nothing to say that it has to. I mean, this, this happens to be a linear progression, but we could just as easily be moving into an exponential progression, something that looks more like you know, your, your, your investments at the bank, right? They start off slow, but then they suddenly go into this power band um, and it, it can get pretty ugly, right? Um, anyway, uh, I just found that interesting, but this is another indica indicator, right? If we're looking at an average right now given the data we've got of three earthquakes per month, and that's just in the five or greater range. Um, that is way beyond what I had any concept of. Never heard about earthquakes in this area, in, in Canada, for years. Certainly not as a kid. In the last 15 years, I've experienced three earthquakes in Oshawa alone. And, and that's just unheard of. Yep. Yep. Uh, we were, we, at one point, 
you know, two of those, I was at home. I remember at one point, at about 6 o'clock in the morning, lying in bed, and I could hear this bang, 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 and I'm thinking to myself, who is hammering in the driveway next door at 6 a.m.? And I sat up and looked, and there was enough light in the room, and it wasn't. It was the doors of my armoire going kabang, 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 because my armoire was rocking back and forth. And I was like, that's an earthquake. And there was another time when I was in the basement, and I heard it. It sounded like a subway train going by underground. You could hear this rush. And I thought, what is that? And then checking the news later. And the third time I was at school, I didn't feel it. I was on one side of the hallway, could not feel it there. But on the other side, all the classrooms were freaking out going, we just had an earthquake. So, so anyway, all that to say that we're seeing an increase in that kind of thing. And that's precisely what Jesus talked about as we approach the end. He does say the end is not yet. Here was one other thing that I just want to throw out to you. I looked at all of the earthquakes that were 8.0 or greater which is pretty significant, right? That is a thousand times more powerful than a 5.0. That's how the scale works, a thousand times more powerful. Um, since 1900, there have been 92. Since the year 2000 only, we've seen 20 of those 92. So if we take even that and we project that, and that, that only went to 2011 data, that's all that was recorded. So if we were to project that, we are on track then to see 120 magnitude 8.0 and up earthquakes by the end of this century, so to 2099. If you think about Haiti alone, that was one of probably the most note noteworthy or newsworthy uh, earthquakes in the last few years, that was 2010, 160,000 or more fatalities, depending on whose uh, data you look at. And, and that one was a 7.0. So, Jesus said in verse 32 that no one knows the day or the hour except the Father. But he also said in verse 29 that when you see these things happening, you know his return is near. In fact, it's right at the door. So what do we do with all this? What's left for us? How do we respond? Perhaps you're a follower of Christ here this morning and become complacent. You've gotten fairly comfortable with your salvation and you're really, you've really just been living your life, figuring it'll move along until maybe retirement, old age, death and heaven. Woohoo, right? I don't know. There'd be no judgment because I've been there. Uh, whoops. Jesus is shaking you up a bit this morning and s with this instruction to be on the alert as the teens that I teach would say, stay woke, Right? Uh, he says it multiple times, right in the end, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, stay awake, stay on the alert, be alert, be aware, know the signs, recognize what's coming. That's what he's saying to us. Maybe you're feeling fearful. Um, as you consider the possibility of persecution and suffering, he's saying that for his disciples. This is what you can expect. Keep in mind that Jesus said, do not worry and do not fear. It's often the trials that drive us closer to Jesus. It was a quote, and I think Jared shared that with me. Is this a Cooperism? Okay, Josh Harris. It says, it's only when Jesus is all you have that you realize Jesus is all you need. Um, not always in our lives do we get to that point, but sometimes we do. 
And that's when you really realize the truth of that. When you have nothing else left to hang on to, it's all you need. It really is all you need. Jesus is promising us that he will not abandon us in the midst of the trial. Rather, his Holy Spirit residing in us will give us the words to speak when the time comes. And perhaps you're hearing you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're hearing all this talk about the end, and frankly, it makes you a little uncomfortable. Nobody really likes to talk about the end. Nobody likes to talk about death. But we all recognize the wisdom of planning for it. Our life insurance wills, our funerals, burial plots. How much more important is it for us to prepare our souls for eternity? We're seeing the signs that Jesus indicated would be the beginning of the birth or labor pains. That means the real pain of labor is about to come. And what do you do when a woman is about to go into labor? You get ready. And that's point number three. You need to be ready. I need to be ready. Jesus said in verse 23, be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. This isn't mean of God to scare us with this information. This is kind of him to give us the heads up before it happens so that we can be ready. And this is precisely Jesus' intent. Years ago, I used to watch the A-team on TV. Yes, we had color back then. (laughs) Inevitably, there would be a bad guy or bad guys that the A-team would confront, because that's what they do, and then would come the time when they knew the bad guys were coming, and they had to prepare for this confrontation. They'd get their stuff together. When a baby is coming, you would probably have a bag packed for mom, ready to go to the hospital, and you might be preparing a room for the baby to come home to, getting the nursery ready or whatever, depending on the time frame, right? Those would be all the things you would do in preparation for the event. If you knew of somebody, maybe you've got this friend, this guy you know, and his wife is like, she's nine months. This baby's coming any moment. And he's relaxing on the couch watching, I don't know, a football game. And he has nothing ready whatsoever. There's no bag pack. There's no nothing. There's, he doesn't even have a full tank of gas in the car, just in case. Right? What would you think about your friend? Hello. Smack, smack, smack. You know, wake up. This baby could come at any time. You need to be ready. You're on deck. How do we prepare for the event that Jesus is referring to in this passage? If you are already a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple, then he is telling you as his disciple that persecution is coming. And that's one thing I appreciate about the Bible is its integrity. Jesus never promised us freedom from trouble. In fact, he promised that we would have trouble. John 16, 33 says, in this world, you will have trouble. It's pretty clear, right? Can't miss the message there. John 15, verse 20 says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So, why? What's this about? Think about what's happening. Think about the privilege for us as followers of Jesus Christ. If we consider all that he has done for us, he is now calling us, calling you and calling me to imitate him, to be Christ in the world. He's asking us to testify. He's asking us to suffer. Because that's what he did. He went all the way to the cross. It may be 
that we have to do the same. But he came to show the love of the Father to people who were lost and headed for an eternity separated from God. He's calling you to do the same thing, even if that means you will suffer persecution and perhaps death. Thirty years ago, I would have never really seen it happening here in Canada. But now, now I'm not so sure. And maybe those of you that are here from the States are seeing the same thing there. There was a, a, a head nod towards Christianity in general 30 years ago. 25 years ago, I moved into the neighborhood where I live right now, and my neighbors in general all basically gave the head nod that church is a good thing. You should go to church. Uh, not me, but you should. It's a good thing. People who go to church, that's a good thing for them to do. And there was that acknowledgement that that was so. Today, that is not the case at all. There is very much in general a mindset that churches are places to be suspicious of. Right? There is an animosity that was not present 25 or 30 years ago. Things have changed. Right? Having said that, we still have great opportunities. And keep in mind, it's not about us. It's really not our eloquent words when we share the gospel. It's not our charming personalities. It's the Holy Spirit already at work in lives. I can speak to that myself. There are people we meet and we get to share the gospel with them and God's already been at work and he's just using us, bringing us to a door, knocking and talking to someone and sharing with them the truth of the gospel. And God's taking that and working it in that person's heart. And it's amazing to see that. And it's amazing to think that God would take you and me, broken individuals, rebels really, and he would turn us around and he would transform us and is transforming us into the image of Christ. And he's saying, I intend to build my kingdom and I'm going to use you and you and you. How amazing is that? That he would do that. And so we have that opportunity. We have that honor. I can't say honestly that I always think of it as an honor that it might cost me my life. Sometimes I'm afraid. I'll be quite frank with you. But I often think of soldiers who go, <laughs> we have one TV channel that we watch and they often have commercials about uh, soldiers who have come back from battle. And I hear these people say, and they have lost limbs or whatever, you know, they have been significantly wounded and often as a result discharged, and they say things like, uh, I would do it again. I would give my leg again. If I could get back there, I'd be back there in a heartbeat. And I'm thinking, how much more me, the one that Jesus Christ left heaven for and came down here and went to a cross to buy my redemption, to save me from hell. He did that for me. How much more should my response be, I'm going back into that battle. I will fight against the enemy and I will bring the light and the peace of the gospel of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. And Maybe they'll slam the door in my face. Maybe they'll spit at me. Maybe they'll hit me. Maybe someday it's going to cost me my life. What a gift to give back. 
to the one who gave it all for me. He loved me enough to go to the cross. Do I love him enough to stand for him, to be Christ in this world as he's calling me to, as his disciple? Am I willing to go to that extent? God doesn't sugarcoat the truth. He tells it like it is, and he expects us to count the cost. But remember, and here's the joy, we sang that. (laughs) We sang, all I have is yours, right? So I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. I'll stand, my soul, Lord, to you surrendered. All I am is yours. I have to be honest and say, sometimes I sing those words way too easily. But this morning, as I was thinking about this, and obviously it was pretty heavy on my mind, and I heard those words, I committed myself again. I will. All I am is yours. Because without him, I've got nothing. Amen? He's calling us, as his followers, to be Christ in the world. To love when it's risky, because it was for him. Remember that nothing man can do can ever affect your eternity. (laughs) The worst you ever face here on earth is the worst you will ever face. It is only awesome from there on in, really. (laughs) You have the opportunity to glorify the one who gave up everything to redeem you and make you his. The fact that persecution is coming in no way discounts his tremendous love for us. He will stand with us in the fire. He will keep an accounting of the wrongs done to his loved ones. And there will come a day of reckoning for those who have laid a finger on his children. He loves you and he cares for you as a father loves his children. Okay, so what can we do to prepare? Here's a couple of things that that I, I came up with as I was doing this. First off, study God's word. And I want you to understand, this is a challenge to me too, because I've been pretty lax in this. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Know it. Let it saturate your lives. Let it be a part of you. When the time comes, the Word of God already being in your heart, the Holy Spirit can prompt those things. Those things you already know, so that you can use it for His glory. That it's right there at the ready. I get that we have cell phones and we can Google just about anything, just about any time. But the reality is that there may be times when we are not with that. And if it's right there, if it's in our memories already, then the Holy Spirit has it right there to just (laughs) touch, as it were, that memory of that verse and bring it to bear on a situation. You're not wasting time flipping. I know it's in here somewhere. It's right there in your memory. This memory that God gave us, a pretty amazing thing. Pray. Pray for wisdom to recognize the signs. Pray for a sensitivity to God's Spirit so that when He says to you, this is a moment, (laughs) here we go. We're going to talk to this person. You see that person standing over there. I want you to share with them. Hey, this person just asked a question. That's not really the question they're asking. There's that underlying question. Let's get to that. Let's touch eternal things. Let's get to the condition of their soul and share with them the possibilities that God has provided in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for courage so that you be bold for him and not fear what man can do. 
Pray for a filling of his spirit so that you'll know when to speak and what to say, but also maybe when to be silent. That's an important one too. And lastly, I would encourage you to practice sharing the gospel. I know that the team that's here is going to go through some 411 training this afternoon. Um, that has been eye-opening for me. Um, just a, a, a neat experience. I think you're going to enjoy uh, the time spent with Jared and the team, those that are, that are going to be doing that training. And then from there, just see the tools that God's made available um, for you to, to share this gospel. Share with those you meet. The more you do so, the more comfortable and natural it becomes. And when it comes time to testify, it'll be so much easier because you've already done it. Right? And then it just kind of flows so much more easily. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you came today out of curiosity because a friend invited you or whatever reason. Maybe you got the flyer in the mailbox and that's why you showed up. Consider the fact that God has very graciously given you a major heads up this morning. This is coming. Maybe this is the first time you have ever heard this kind of a message. You now know what's coming and you have a choice. You can mock it and or ignore it, or you can act on it. I entitled this sermon, How the Past Makes a Bright Future Possible for Us. Those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ already know that. We know how the cross has made a bright future guaranteed for us. Regardless of what happens here, this is temporary. This is, this is a wink. That's what this is. And we've got eternity with him. But for those of you that are not in that position, um, I want you to know that 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus to this earth to live a perfect life and to tell us that he and he alone is the only way to a relationship with God the Father. You're not good enough on your own. I'm not either. God's standard is perfection, and none of us are perfect. But Jesus was that perfect, acceptable man, and he stood in your place. He took the punishment for your offenses against God, dying on the cross at Calvary so you wouldn't have to. And then he rose from the dead to prove he is who he says he is, demonstrating that God, too, is satisfied with what Jesus did and that his death is the substitute for yours. If you accept that gift and become a disciple of Jesus, make him your Savior and the Lord of your life, then you escape that ultimate judgment because Jesus was already judged for you. But if you don't, know that you will suffer the tribulation spoken of in the chapter and then afterward, you'll stand judgment yourself for your own sins, the penalty for which is eternal separation from God and eternal punishment in hell. The choice is really yours. But we would encourage you, we would plead with you this morning, man, take the gift. We have, many of us here have, and it is unbelievable. And I've been, hmm, I've been in the blessing of that for a little over 50 years-ish now, I'm still unpacking more layers to that gift. And I'm sure that if you talk with anybody here who has been a, a Christian, they'll say, man, there are still continually things that God is showing me about his amazing love for me and why he would even do that. Take advantage of that this morning. You can speak to me if you wish. Um, there are some people probably at each of the tables there. If you've got more questions about this, you can speak to them. You can speak to Jerry. We would be delighted to share with you what Jesus Christ has done for us and done for you and how you can have the salvation that he freely offers because he paid the full price himself at Calvary. 
Thanks. Let's just close in prayer. And then I'm going to call on Kyle to come back up for one more song. Father, <laughs> Father, your love is unbelievable and undeniable. And we thank you that we can be recipients of that freely through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. We thank you that you accept us exactly the way we are, that we don't have to clean ourselves up first before we come. But you will accept us the way you, we are, and then you will do the work of transforming us into the image of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that there are some of us, perhaps many of us, that in our humanness fear the, the persecution and the, the difficulties that that your word says will come and yet we just turn to you and we pray for the courage to boldly testify to your love, your grace, your glory, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we, we would desire that we would count our lives as nothing for the opportunity to glorify you and to testify to your greatness and your holiness and your love. And Father, maybe there's somebody here this morning that's just wrestling with all of this. Somebody that's never heard this message before, or perhaps they have heard the message before and never taken that step, that stand, wanting to be your child. Father, this was a, a difficult message to hear this morning. But Father, we thank you too for the, the joy and the promise that says that when we accept that gift that Jesus Christ freely offers, we become children of God, not just servants in your kingdom, although that would be an amazing thing of it in and of itself, but you adopt us as kids into your family, and you love us as a father ought to love his children. Glorious thing. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for your mercy and your grace, willing to give your son for us before we ever responded. And we'd pray, Father, that, uh, that your name would be glorified and that you would speak to those hearts this morning. May they come to you. May they give their lives to you. It's so worth it. And we thank you. And we pray that you are pleased with our worship this morning too as we sing one last song. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.